Today on the podcast, I have my longtime friend, Carrie Higgins, who I have, I still have you in my phone as Carrie Higgins Veritas. <laughs> that's how I always think of you. I'm like, I have Carrie Higgins Veritas because that's where we went to school together in Costa Rica. Um, so we met in 2013 in Costa Rica. We were both studying abroad and Carrie came with our other friend, Mariana, and we just became fast friends. I think there's, there's something unique about being, you know, in a new space where you don't know anybody that it just kind of like forges friendships more quickly. And we just like connected and, and became good friends. And then that following January, uh, Corey bought me a plane ticket, surprised me with a plane ticket. He had been plotting with Carrie and Mariana, um, to New York to go see them. Uh, they live in New York and that's the last time we've seen each other. So it's been over nine years. So uh, Carrie is a therapist. Um, a licensed social worker. So we're going to talk about mental health and therapy and all the things, but I want to give Carrie a moment to introduce herself further. Okay. Hi, I'm Carrie. I am so excited to be talking to you. It's such a trip, like nine years, like five minutes because of social media. Um, but I'm Carrie. I'm a clinical social worker. I run my own practice and I treat people struggling with anxiety and trauma and depression. And I'm just, you know, really enjoying starting my own business and doing it my own way and serving people in a way that feels good for me and also being part of really important conversations. I feel like mental health has really taken off as a topic lately, Mm -hmm. um, long overdue. So that's me currently. I live in New York. How long have you been in practice and what what led you to becoming uh, therapist? I've been in practice since 2018. I think what led me to becoming a therapist is my childhood. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously wanting to help people and serve people is like top line, what a lot of therapists might say, but you develop, or at least I did a curiosity about people from a really young age. You know, I just, I saw adult suffering and I was very curious and I wanted to know why. And then I got really curious about what makes people tick, what makes them connect, what makes them relate. So I think deep down, I've always wanted to be a therapist. And then I remember in college, I think it was like my senior year, I was a communications major. I had like this whisper of like, you really want to be a guidance counselor or a therapist or something in the psychology realm. And I was just like, no, it's it's just too late. Like I'll do like marketing or something Mm -hmm. that that will like feed me. I can really excel there too. And so I, I just kind of heard that whisper, but didn't really listen to it. And then I went back to school after two years in corporate fashion. And I remember at this job, actually, I started to have somatic symptoms, like a tight throat or a tight chest. And I was taking a class, a psychology class um, at night to try to make sure like, okay, this is what I want to do. I'm going to take a Mm -hmm. class and I'll go back to school. Exactly. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm allergic to eggs because I was eating eggs for lunch that day. And I was talking to the buyer at my job and she was like I don't think you're allergic to eggs like I think this is like a panic moment and I remember thinking yeah I think my body's trying to tell me something um so I left that job and then I actually went on like a five-week little euro trip and then I went back to grad school full-time and worked and figured it out um and it I mean the best thing I've ever done I think what really made me nervous about doing that was like oh, I'm disrupting my timeline I'm going to be in grad school mm-hmm. and all the friends are working and I look back and I'm so grateful that I could see the bigger picture because, um, I mean, at that moment in time, it feels like the end of the world, like you'll be behind, but yeah, obviously your older, wiser self is more knowing. That's really impressive that you were able to listen to that voice Mm -hmm. because I mean, just in my own experience, I think I've heard those whispers and, you know, gotten signals from myself, uh, that I should be taking a different direction, but we don't always listen to it. And it can be really hard to trust ourselves and our like inner voice and, and follow that. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think that's, I think that's unique that you were able Mm -hmm. to tune into that and like, trust it and follow it. And that led you here. Thank you. Yeah. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful that it got loud enough that I had to listen but yeah, it, there was a lot of that. A lot of, is this true? Am I just having a grass is greener moment? Maybe I'll, you know, just stay with this job. It does get really confusing. So um, 
definitely feels like a blessing that I was able to listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. So do you remember when you were having like anxiety symptoms, was it, was it brought on by like an event or something going on? Or was it just more of you feeling like you weren't where you were supposed to be? I think for me now that I've learned to understand the language of my body is it was avoidance. Um, and, and I don't mean that in out, like I was actively consciously avoiding. It's just, I think sometimes we don't want to know what we know. So the body makes it known to us. And I think that's what was happening. Cause I remember I was like taking a bus feed quiz, eating like hard boiled eggs. Like I was the person that brought hard boiled eggs. It's definitely not that my body is telling me I'm in the wrong lane of my life. It must be the eggs. (laughs) Yeah, I literally was like, I think I'm allergic to eggs. Um, <laughs> obviously went to an allergist before I decided oh it was my gosh. the job. But if for me, I've learned that those symptoms come up when I'm not acknowledging a deeper thing or a deeper truth or an experience that might not make sense or might not feel comfortable. A lot of panic underneath it and a lot of models of therapy are just what we know as humans is, is there's a hidden emotion underneath it, something we're not saying or expressing. It's interesting what happens to the panic when we address it, it kind of goes away. Yeah, I think, and you're obviously the expert in this arena. So like redirect me if I'm wrong, but I feel like our logical brains get in the way, you know, mm-hmm. because like our body's telling us what it needs to tell us. And our logical brain, at least for me, goes through the like, well, if, if this thing that you're feeling is true, then that means this and this and this, and then you'll have to change this and then you'll have to change that. And it'll just, you know, like your brain just kind of like spirals and, and then you tell yourself that inner voice to be quiet. Cause you're like, this really complicates things. If this thing that I'm feeling is true. It like dismantles every framework I've ever built. So yeah, that becomes almost like a hot stove internally. Like if I touch it, then everything's going to collapse or burn down. Which makes it so hard to listen to that voice. What we're learning now is when we invite the voice in and, and just get curious with it, we get so much, we have access to just so much more information and self-leadership because when something startles us, it feels like, okay, it has to go away. And then it becomes right. taboo and then it gets louder. So eventually we have no other choice but to just let it come in. Yeah, it'll it'll make itself known in some way. And probably the longer you push it off, the more unpleasant the <laughs> way that it makes itself known is, you know, yeah. the way that it eventually <laughs> comes out. So you knew from a fairly young age that you wanted to be a therapist. You took a different path, went to college, and then switched gears, went back to grad school. So as you were doing that discovery of like, you know, taking the psych classes, figuring out like, is this really what I want to do? Kind of testing it out. How did you know what kind of therapy you wanted to do or like what, because I feel like there are so many different types of therapy and so many ways to approach it. So how did you know or or figure out the path within therapy that was right for you? That's a really good question because there is so much you can do and it can actually be really overwhelming. I Mm -hmm. think The way I figured that out was by doing clinical placements in grad school. They have you do different field placements. So you get exposure to just different types of environments and different types of diagnoses and people. And I remember my first placement, I was just not lit up by it. I didn't feel connected to it. I mean, I still learned a lot that helped inform everything else I was doing. But then my second placement, I was working at an eating disorder center and I just got a lot of exposure to trauma, complex PTSD, anxiety, depression, and that, that kind of lit me up a bit more. So then I followed that. And then I worked in a treatment center and that really lit me up. And then I followed that. So it's almost like you're kind of swinging vine to vine in terms of finding what you really connect to. And then the people that connect with you as well in your work. Yeah, I think I always knew I wanted to work um, in a clinical setting, private practice, doing psychotherapy. A lot of social workers will do community organizing or they will do something on a more macro or meso level, but I always knew I wanted to take the clinical path, which is a bit longer because you have to get supervision and take a second licensure exam. But that part felt clear from the beginning, which is, I think, a blessing because I didn't yeah. waste didn't any time to for it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what drew you, you think, to working with people who have experienced trauma? It kind of, it was like a happy accident. Like I started working with people who had anxiety or a substance use issue or panic or OCD. And when you're in grad school and you're learning, you don't always have control of the clients you see. You just kind of get who you're assigned to. But the underlying issue in almost every person is 
some sort of emotional unmet need or a time that they felt helpless. And then we develop all these strategies around what we didn't get or what didn't happen. And now, you know, pop psychology, and I don't even really think it's a pop psychology term, it's just a term, like we have all these trauma responses. And I think Mm -hmm. now there's just so much more awareness that trauma isn't just these big T's. It isn't just these, you know, one catastrophic event. Right. Your your mom not picking you up after school because she was running late can feel. I have a moment like that. (laughs) I have a a core memory of of experiencing that. It is traumatic. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I think exactly that, like to that point, I think that's what kind of drew me into the world of learning how to treat trauma. Um, and I'm still learning about it because there's a lot of interventions that are specifically for anxiety or specifically for depression. But what is underneath a lot of that is usually some type of interference with feeling love, safety, or belonging. And that's mm-hmm. something that, um, you know, was true to me in the work I do. So in my own experiences with going to therapy, um, I've done a lot of work with like nurturing my inner child and like mm-hmm. learning to mother that younger version of me and just learning to love her and care for her. And, and then also, which I think is super interesting, um, interacting, I guess maybe is the word with older me. And so kind of connecting Mm -hmm. to that full age spectrum of me, um, you know, the me who existed and the me who hopefully one day will exist in an older form and how, how older me might like parent present me. And I just, I think that work is so interesting and I found it very healing because there were a lot of things, you know, growing up, I had pretty low self-esteem. I was suffering from anxiety, but did not know what to call it. I don't think anybody knew what to call it. So I've said before, like, I just thought I was weird (laughs) and had like, not fears necessarily, but just, um, I mean, I would call it anxiety now, but, um, like feelings of panic. And like a lot of times I was in social settings. And so I just felt very like insecure and unsure of myself. And, you know, that kind of like leads to more complicated feelings of like not liking yourself because you don't fit in and, and then being mad at yourself. Like, why can't I just be normal? Like, why do I, you know, so is that, is that part of your practice? Is that something that you do is like parenting or maybe you have another word for it, your, your younger self or your inner child. I love that you're doing that in your own therapy. And yeah, it is. I think in my work, I can call it reparenting with my clients. Sometimes it's just parts work, um, which is just a term for internal family systems where you're dealing with different parts of yourself and you might identify, you have a part of yourself that's really critical and you might identify, okay, well, how old is this part of me actually? Mm. Find out it's like this five-year-old part of you that needed to criticize to feel safe or to feel in control and it's interesting when you create like a dialogue between five-year-old you and 31-year-old you and um yeah I think speaking and interacting with your inner child is it's crucial to trauma healing because there's so many frozen parts of us that are still operating at the same level and intensity that they were at that time that something that happened so it's almost like you're bringing it up to date with your nurturing loving current self or even your future self and what you're doing just so cool yeah and I remember when so this was a few years ago I started going to therapy finally in 2018 or 2019 and I remember at first it felt so weird I was like I'm gonna do what like (laughs) you know I just I was like this this feels uncomfortable and then over time like you know, got more used to it in your practice. Do you, do you see resistance to, to that? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I'll just say like, I'll be like, listen, I know this feels a little wacky, but we're just going to go for it because we're not doing that. We're not taught to do that in school. We're not really taught to do that at home. So I do find that some people and clients will say like, I don't know about this. This feels a little woo woo, but I think Mm -hmm. willingness is one of the most beautiful qualities. And then even if you aren't willing that's so helpful to us because then we can say, okay, what sort of judgment is here around this in yourself? And you can even work with that if there is a lack of willingness because everybody starts somewhere. And I think I've definitely as a client, you know, done things in therapy where I've been like, I don't know about this guy. And, you know, we all have that voice that's a little bit protective and curious, um, skeptical. 
Which makes me think of too, um, you know, I hear sometimes when I'm in conversations with people just talking about the topic of therapy, that there's resistance to therapy in general, because there's a misperception that therapy is attributing everything that's like wrong in your life right now to some something that happened in childhood mm -hmm. and like that it's like hyper focusing on what happened to you as a kid and placing blame and you know rather than just like continuing to to barrel forward and you know keep looking to the future instead it's like oh i'm again hyper focusing on the past and that's not going to help me looking backwards like you know, that's, I don't know. I just, I hear kind of that sort of sentiment a lot and, and I never know how to exactly counter that, but I know it's not true, you know, cause I've been in therapy and I know that it is productive to look back and to do that work in order to continue moving forward. I'm just curious if that's something that, that you come up against. I think that's such a great thing to bring up because I do hear that a lot and it, there are different types of therapy, like there are even competing therapy models, some that say we don't really talk about the past, we only work on what's in the here and now. And I think the answer to that is like, it's all a balance. I think when you haven't gone to therapy, like you're saying, I know that's not true because I've been, I think it's a narrative that's easy to fall back on. And also it's, it's no one's fault that that narrative exists because I think it's like what the, you know, pop culture will show us or movies will show us as someone sitting on a couch and being like, oh, it all started when I was yeah, <laughs> but like wallowing is, in the past. Yeah. And the truth is when you come to therapy, most therapists hopefully will ask you, how can you take personal responsibility for your here and now with this really beautiful understanding of the past and how it's impacted you? There's this idea that, right? Like it's not your fault that it happened, mm -hmm. but it is your responsibility to live life in a way that feels true to you and authentic to you. And some therapists might push you that way and some might not. And everybody's style is different. And some people need to sit in the past for a little bit to honor their experience, have these emotionally corrective experiences where they feel validated and seen. Because when we're not, when we're walking around without our own dots connected, it's really hard to make sense of our reality. And not that it all needs to be this logical experience where we're making sense of it, but it creates some sort of clarity and understanding so we can be more selfless. So I think it, it really is a balance between looking in the past and the here and now, but I definitely come up against that narrative because, you know, there's old school psychoanalysis that's, you know, tell me about your mom and all, and all of that is important. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I'll ask a client, what would happen when you, you know, didn't feel good at home when you were younger? How did you know your mom was around or your parents were around? How'd you get your needs met? Because yeah. we're all in relationship either with ourselves or the partner, or the friendship. So the past is exactly what creates how we relate in the here and now. So yeah, that is yeah. a big and common misconception. Um, and it's important. And usually I find people that have that narrative have had people in their lives that might not know yet what to do with the information, meaning they might weaponize the past and say, well, because you did this, I'm this way. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's where we need to be in that moment. And then we move past that and say, oh, okay, because this happened, I react this way and now I need to do this, but it's, yeah. a, it's a journey. Yeah. You mentioned that the conversation around therapy and mental health is gaining steam and has become more of a popular and like normalized thing to talk about. What do you think has led us to where we are now with, with being more open about talking about mental health? I think there's so many potential answers to this question, but the first thing that comes to mind is that we have social media or not even just social media, we have media. We all have access to this thing that we're all doing at the same time, even if we're alone. And we're all consuming a lot of really valuable education around you know, our own mental health and around growth. And it's, I think, creating a lot of conversations at home or behind closed doors where people are just becoming more conscious Mm -hmm. And coming off of autopilot to say, well, just because this happened in the past doesn't mean that's how I have to keep living my future. And I don't think our parents and their parents really had the space or the access or the means to fully feel like they could dive into that um, mm -hmm. without judgment or maybe 
with a chance to follow through on what they're learning because it, it feels like there was a set of norms that they, they really had to adhere to. Not that we don't have our own norms, but I think yeah. there's something collective happening just consciously as as a human population right now where I think people are saying, well, this way isn't working. And so people are breaking off and saying, how can I shift and change? In recent years, maybe more like recent last decade, isn't it true that instances of like depression and um, and suicide have increased in in like recent decades, kind of as this conversation is also on the up and up? I think you are right about that. I mean, we have all this talk about mental health, yet you're in a mental health crisis. Yeah. And so... It's interesting how those two coincide. It is. And, you know, it it makes me wonder why. But one of the things that I'm wondering about, too, is that there's a lot more loneliness now more than ever. Uh And I, I don't know if generations in the past had this level of isolation and loneliness. And I'm not just talking about like being in physical spaces, but people like internal loneliness mm-hmm. um, that a lot of people are experiencing and social media or just media or just more of a mental health movement can spark a lot of conversations and almost bring a lot of feelings and thoughts to light. And some people might have not have anything to do, not anywhere to put them is what I'm trying to say, or people mm-hmm. in their that can't accept and hold them in their struggle. It's an interesting time for mental health. Yeah. In your practice, what what are the demographics typically of the people you see as far as like age? Yeah, I, would, I see adults. Um, so my youngest client that I see is 18 and my oldest is actually probably in their 40s. But the, the chunk of, of people are probably millennials and yeah. older folks um, navigating relationships work, school, themselves, self-discovery. Do you find it challenging to treat people who are older than you? Like feeling, I I mean, I think of myself, if I were to treat somebody older than me, I'd be like, what do I know? Like you're older than me. I mean, I've definitely had moments of insecurity or imposter syndrome. Yes. Like, and any therapist that tells you they don't have that, I'd like to meet them, but <laughs> I I have. And the way that I work through that is, well, I, I have supervision. So I work with a supervisor and mm-hmm. it's a common thing that comes up, but this might sound like a woo-woo answer, but I just think about souls. Like I think about if, if I have age within in this room, if all of these social constructs weren't in the room, what, how can my soul connect to this person's soul and really speak to them and help them and hold them? Because even if I'm not a parent and I'm working with somebody who is, I've had parents, my soul can understand on some level what they're saying. And everybody has an inner child. Everybody has part of them that feels scared or curious or um, wounded in some way, not to overgeneralize, but that's what I find. So when that happens, I try to say, okay, how can I just focus on this soul to soul connection? And that really does help me, but it took me a while to get there. Hmm. Do you see differences, um, I guess, across the board between patients who are like differences in the issues that they're coming to you with or differences in the way that they approach things that they're dealing with depending on their age? So whether they're Gen Z, millennial or Gen X, you know, to Mm kind of cover the span of the patients that you see. That's a good question. I would say... A lot of my millennial clients have a lot of awareness, a lot of self-insight, are pretty motivated to come to therapy. Hmm. And I would say everybody I see is is motivated to come to therapy, but I would say some of my older clients, they grew up with a lot, a lot more, I I would say, long overdue. I would say maybe a a bit more long Mm -hmm. overdue. They had the space. And I'm not saying this is every older person. Some people... Mm -hmm did not have this experience. I'm just speaking from experience of either my parents or some of the older clients I see is that it's just been long overdue. So um, some, you know, things will come out and we need to take a lot of space and patience and pacing to really create space to just actually feel the feelings that come with what's coming through. Um, I think a lot of us jump to intellectualize. I've done this too, intellectualize what's happening because we mm-hmm. have so much information. We're kind of taught to it is it is helpful to us in some way. Mm-hmm. But to intellectualize it, to to bypass it rather than to slow down and really feel it. Mm-hmm. The body can start to heal 
Um, that's something I just noticed in terms of an age gap that I think a lot of people could just benefit from slowing down to feel and not intellectualize as much. So hard. It's so hard. Like that's always been my inclination in therapy is like, no, I want to, I want to, I always think of this like metaphor, I guess. I want to take the things out of my brain that are in it. I want to look at them. I want to turn them over and like figure them out and then put them back in. I don't want to be like, I guess that's literally, I want to be out of my body. Like, I don't want to, it's so hard to just sit and be with yourself and slow down and like, just feel the things that you're feeling and listen to your body. And I think part of that is that culturally we're taught not to, you know, like, like you alluded to where we're taught to intellectualize, um, you know, it, often we use the term woo woo for things that are more on like a soul or a spiritual level, um, intuition, like all of that feels we're taught to kind of like not trust that and to trust logic and mm -hmm. that that's safe. And so I, I noticed that in myself in therapy that I sort of yeah. get impatient with the, okay, let's slow down, like feel how your body is feeling. And I've noticed before, like, as my therapist is kind of guiding me through that and telling me, you know, slow down, be in your body, like, or, you know, do something, put your hand on your heart, whatever it is um, that I'm like sitting there, like bouncing my knee, like, oh my God, okay. I just want to talk about this. I just want to like <laughs> intellectualize it and look at it and examine it. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm just saying that to say that it's, it's hard to, in this culture, I think particularly to slow down and just be in your body and like, listen to what your body has to say. I, I think that's a really beautiful point to make, because if you think about it, a lot of us were taught that something isn't valid unless it's, there's evidence for it. Like think about this little person inside of you that feels like they need to explain themselves or over. Yes. Oh my gosh. And yes. we're not really taught to say, actually, <laughs> this is just my truth. This is just what I know because society hasn't been built like that. So I think that's such right. a good point that you're bringing up. Um, truly. And I mean, it's interesting, right? How, I'm not sure if your therapist does this with you. It sounds like she, she or he does when you get into the body and you feel something. Sometimes you can have an emotional experience and the brain is going to try to be making sense of it, but it can't. And then your body is doing something completely different. And it's just, we have a lot of proof that things live inside of our body. And sometimes we don't need logic to um, make something valid or true, but it's hard for us to hold on to that because it doesn't come with a lot of safety or reassurance or guarantee. I think it's we're something to not trust our bodies in, in, in lots of different contexts, you know, that could go a lot of different directions, but I think we're taught to don't trust your body, um, trust logic, which is not a bad thing to trust logic, but it's like our body speaks to beyond the conscious, like thinking mind has things to tell us and teach us too. Totally. Yeah. And I think I speak to this so much, or maybe we're, we keep coming back here so much is because this is something I do as a client. Like my therapist will say, okay, whoa, let me get you back into your body. And mm -hmm. I find myself doing that more with my clients. And it's, it's extremely, um, it can be really moving um, to just see what comes through. So obviously, you know, the questions that I just asked you a minute ago about uh, issues that you see with people in your practice are coming from people who are at least to some degree, willing to come to therapy because they're mm -hmm. in therapy. Mm -hmm. So I guess, what do you, what are your thoughts on why people avoid therapy or why there's a fear around going to therapy? Because there, you know, although there is a big conversation going on about mental health, people are being more open. There's still um, resistance from a lot of people you know, okay. that, that therapy is scary or they have some stereotype in their mind from media, movies, whatever, and, and they avoid it when they, you know, could really benefit from it. So like, what do you see? There? Yeah, I think you really nailed one of the big pieces is that, well, I'm just going to be talking about my past and stuck in the past. And that's mm -hmm. not what I want to be doing my time. That's one thing that I see. I also see that it, it can be an issue with receiving, like almost feeling like I don't, I don't deserve to be spending this money or taking up this time to focus on myself. Like it can almost feel wrong to do that. Mm -hmm. Selfish. And yeah, exactly. Um, so that's something I think that can sometimes be a slight barrier for people, depending on how you were raised. You know, I've, I've seen some men who say, well, I feel weak for being here. And it breaks my heart that that's still a narrative, but it is a strong narrative for a lot of them. 
And so that's, that's the big one. Um, and I also think that if you've heard of a friend or somebody who has had a negative therapy experience, you've decided that therapy is then like, just not it. There are yeah. so many reasons that it becomes a little bit of a tough spot to get through or acceptance yeah. around it because um, every therapist is different. Every, every There's so many different approaches. So yeah. you might be talking about therapy, not knowing you have access to the exact therapy you need. It's just about finding it. And then there's obviously yeah. like the access of means and insurance yes. issues and money, I think can be such a barrier and a, and a a real problem, like a real problem. We could have a different, oh, yes. but yeah. So those are, I think just a few, but I know there are so many more. Yeah. <laughs> Won't even get into the can of worms that, uh, the healthcare system and the way that it views therapy is because that is a whole can of worms <laughs> and it's yeah, unfortunate. I and I, a good friend of mine actually, um, was in therapy, loved her therapist, and then their health insurance changed and she can no longer like afford or justify the the cost of like fully paying out of pocket for therapy. And it's sad. It's like, you know, it it should be something that we have access to. I mean, healthcare in general is, you know, there are significant barriers to access, but um I I hope that in the future it's integrated more as like, and seen as this, an essential part of our health and not separate from our physical health because the two are so intertwined. Okay. So great. Speaking to the barrier of, of finding the right therapist and finding the right fit, you know, that that's something that I've struggled with. And actually right now I'm in between therapists. Um, and part of the reason that I'm still in between therapists is because it feels daunting to go through the process of of trying to find the right fit, um, you know, cause you have to kind of start over with your story and like, like, yeah. you know, fill, fill people in. And I've seen, I've seen things on social media that, that, uh, of like creating a PowerPoint to, I mean, like, it was a joke, but like, here's my trauma. Like, let me fill you in point by point. So I don't have to like explain it every time or like, you know, give someone, give the therapist the PowerPoint and be like, here, required reading, come back to me and let me know, you know, if we can talk, but, um, but really like I get, I get breakup anxiety, you know, like I, <laughs> I'm actually really impressed that I didn't just straight up ghost my first therapist because we were, um, I was seeing her for like three or four years and I just felt like we'd reached the end of our road together. It was no, like nothing negative. She helped me a lot, but I yeah. just felt like we we, we reached the end of our road and, um, it was really a tough thing for me to break up with her. Cause I didn't want her to feel like she did something wrong or that she, you know, was like, I was just worried that people are gonna take it as like rejection or, you know, oh, I didn't do enough or whatever. And so I'm so scared of hurting other people's feelings that, that the thought of even going to one visit with a therapist and then being like, this isn't the right fit is like <laughs> such a barrier for me because I am so scared of like hurting people's feelings. And I know that's a thing for me. And like the therapist will be fine. You know, I'm not going to shatter their world if I'm like, we're not the right fit, but mm -hmm. it it's such a, it's such a thing. So like, maybe you can make me feel better. Like from a therapist <laughs> perspective, like, are, is your world going to be shattered if somebody comes in and talks to you and then is like, this isn't the right fit? No, as you're talking, you know, what's interesting is like one, the answer to that is absolutely not. No. Um, I, as a therapist appreciate when people are honest and taking care of themselves because you can sense when somebody is in the room or in the session and there's a lot that's being unsaid and it can just be a felt sense. And so no, your world isn't shattered. I'd imagine your therapist, <laughs> yeah, rest easy. <laughs> uh, your therapist, after three or four years of working with you, would almost feel proud of you for being able to say what you need and take aligned action to go and and create the next step for yourself. Because as you're talking, right, obviously we're hearing that you're taking on emotional responsibility for your therapist and wanting to caretake her. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. I'm like it's okay. I promise. I love you so much. Like, I'm yeah. Exactly. So 
No, the short answer is no, our worlds aren't shattered. I mean, therapists go through their own process too of wondering, okay, well, like, what, what type of work do I want to be doing? What type of client do I want to be working with? But whenever a client leaves, you process, okay, what was helpful to you about therapy? What wasn't? What did you like? What kind of growth did you feel yourself making? What strides were hit? You know, you're constantly also talking about the therapeutic relationship in therapy. Like mm-hmm. I, I see my clients all the time. Like, so how's this going for you? How's <laughs> therapy yeah. going? Like we must do relationship check-ins. Um, but the answer to your question is no, my world wouldn't be shattered. I'd be proud of my client for taking care of themselves and doing what they need to do. Well, for full disclosure, I wrote her a letter. <laughs> I couldn't face it in person. <laughs> so I wrote her a letter and mailed it to her. But um, but I think for me that comes from, you know, to to get back to like talking about childhood um, comes from in childhood feeling responsible for adults feelings and being mm-hmm. very, very aware of what the adults in my life were feeling and not wanting to burden them, um, you know, with my feelings or, or hurt their feelings with, my, with how I'm, you know, what I'm thinking or, or what's going on in my mind. And so like just being quiet and like, kind of barreling through that, even, even when that's not like the right thing to do. It's almost what you're describing to me is almost, um, it's like what I would call an adult child issue, which I think a lot of us have, uh, especially in our age cohort where you're sort of making, um, calls from a place of an inner child, a, a part of you that feels riddled with fear and doubt, like, Oh my God, what if I heard feelings? Or is this what I really want? And all of those voices and thoughts come up. And I actually think it's beautiful that you wrote a letter. I mean, that feels like a really great way for you to express yourself. I mean, I know you're like kind of giggling, like, hmm, got out of it, but typical um, of me. Right. But but what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And it is something that a lot of people struggle with is that is there space for my experience? Can people handle it? Can people validate it? Will I be taken care of? Um you know, it's kind of like this narrative of a parentified child that I have to take care of the adults around me because um, these emotions are too big. So I want to talk about a couple of tools that are used in therapy um, to help people. And uh, one of them I am experienced with and the other one I know nothing about really. I've just like heard the word or the phrase be used. So the first one is just is gratitude and how that can be used as a tool for, I guess, improving our mental health. What are your thoughts on on using gratitude and and how do you encourage people to use gratitude to to improve their mental health? I love a gratitude practice. I really I, I honestly think it's so important. Gratitude really just it changes our brain. I mean there's research that shows it it literally can help you create new neural pathways. Um, and in the area of your brain associated with decision-making, social connection, and, you know, evidence that shows people who practice gratitude are more likely to just feel more connected to themselves, therefore to other people. And that influences your behavior to take steps to do things that build more of that. It's almost like the gift that keeps on giving mm-hmm. is thing gratitude. And I also think that when I present it to clients, I'm pretty delicate because if you've ever been fed the narrative, like just be grateful for what you have, it can mm-hmm. feel actually like kind of triggering for your sex. Like, right. Like <laughs> it, it feels like invalidating. Yes, exactly. It feels invalidating and it feels like what you're saying doesn't matter because you just need to be grateful for what you have. And that always, there's always something or someone that has it worse. Mm-hmm. So I think a gratitude practice has to be approached in a way that's really, I don't want to say delicate, but just like really taking it for what you want it to be. So your gratitude practice doesn't need to mean that everything else is okay. It just means I'm making a conscious choice to focus on or identify things that I really feel grateful for, things that feel good in my bones. And knowing that the two can exist at the same time, you can feel really grateful for your cup of coffee and sunshine this morning. And you can also have this feeling of dread about your bitch boss or whatever it is that's coming up for you. <laughs> or you could have had like a, a PTSD flashback, but also feel really grateful for your, your child's laughter. So I think there's there's that piece of gratitude that sometimes gets skipped and it turns people off from gratitude because they think, well, mm. I'm just gonna be delusional. I'm like grateful for everything. And right. adjacent to so many things. And it's like um, weaponizing gratitude when it's done that way. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not saying that it is totally, but I find that I think gratitude and the practice of gratitude is life-changing. And yeah. I think people turn away from it because there's that attached narrative or their own trauma from the past that comes with it. So I'm yeah. a big, big advocate for gratitude practice. I wonder too, if it would, you know, I, I was thinking about how we were talking about how sometimes, you know, people feel resistance to doing the inner child work because they feel like that's stalling their life and like, like wallowing in the past or, you know, hyper-focusing on the past. And so I feel like, and maybe I've done this, maybe this is where this thought's coming from, but um, using gratitude alongside that work feels like it'd be a good balancing force Mm -hmm. so that you're able to look back and like be honest about the things that happened to you, but to avoid feeling like, oh, I'm just stuck in the past. You know, I, it's, I don't like looking back because it makes me just feel stuck or like I'm wallowing. But if you have a gratitude practice alongside that, I feel like it would be able to balance that work in a way that keeps you out of that headspace. So allowing you to like do that work of like looking back, but also keeping you grounded in the present. Like you said, acknowledging the things that are challenging in your life, but also acknowledging the things that are good in your life at the same time. I think that's a beautiful approach uh, because it, it, the gratitude can also serve as almost like an anchor in the here and now yeah. you're processing the past so much. It like, you know, we've talked about or spoke about on, on yes. this it can be really overwhelming. And you know, what's interesting about that. I don't need to take it on a tangent is that when we have a fear of being stuck in the past, when we're doing the inner child work, the whole point of doing inner child work is so that we're not stuck in the past because until we heal that inner child, we're just going to keep trying to get our needs met in the same way. Um, mm. And so that's just something to, um, to think about, but I think those two things together are really beautiful. Yeah. I have like on the edge of my mind, um, an experience that I had with doing inner child work, something that I was stuck in and a behavior that I learned in childhood that I was still doing as an adult that was not serving my adult self and I couldn't fix it until I went back and talked through that and, and, you know, kind of figure like, and, and my therapist had me like, I I think I wrote to my younger child self and was like, Hey, it's okay to stop doing this thing. You know, you don't have to keep doing this. And then it like, like, I think of it sort of like a, like a knotted muscle and it's like, working the muscle, telling the muscle, like you can relax, like, it's okay. You don't have to hold this. And maybe that is like a literal thing. Um, mm-hmm. cause we hold, we hold these things in our muscles too, Yeah. but working it out and being like, you don't have to hold this thing anymore. And then that translates to like your present life. And then you don't continue on that, like same hamster wheel of that mm-hmm. behavior. That's no longer serving you. When we're self-sabotaging in some way, usually it's because there's an inner child that's scared or afraid yeah. it can be so minor it doesn't have to be this big cash thing right but, but there are I like your you know the way you're talking about it almost is like a knotted muscle because eventually what happens is you come online you talk to your child and you say I've got you you're safe you don't need to yeah. work so hard to do that anymore like we're gonna we're gonna do it this way but that love that connection yeah. that you create internally is that's the work yeah um, Yeah. And being able to say to your younger, like have, have like empathy, I guess, for your younger self and, and grace and be like, Hey, I understand that you think you're doing this to like protect me. So thank Mm -hmm. you, but we don't have to do this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm Yeah. Like anything that gives you an ick about yourself is a good in with your inner child and to say thank you and to acknowledge, I think is really vital to the practice. Clearly, I love inner child work because I keep coming back to it. <laughs> I love that you love it. I could talk about it all day. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of, I don't know if you've heard of internal family systems or if your therapist does that with you. Uh-uh. It's a lot of, you know, the work is essentially, I'm learning about the model. I'm not an expert in it by any means, but I just feel really called to it because it's based on creating this internal attachment system that feels secure. Like we talk about our attachment systems with other people, but how are we attaching to the self? And then how can we create an internal secure attachment? And a lot lot of it is reparenting because you're working with different parts and you're finding out how old they are. And oftentimes they're young. So needless to say, I talk about inner child work for a really long time too. 
Have you heard of or read the book, I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy? I haven't, but you're like the eighth person to talk about it. Um, so I feel like I will have to. Yeah. Um, I think I understand why she titled it the way that she did. I think it can be off-putting and, and triggering. And, you know, even I was like, ooh. But the book was so good in so many ways. Um, she worked mm -hmm. through like a lot of big traumas in therapy. And um, one thing, so where I was going with this is one thing that came to mind with like reparenting, I think a lot of, I think parents can oftentimes bristle at that and be like, I, I did my best. Like, why do you need to reparent yourself? You know, you had a, you had parents who loved you, who did their very best. And, and I do, I just want to like say that it's, you know, oftentimes in therapy, my therapist would say all the time, you know, everybody, every parent does the best that they can with the tools that they have. And, um, oh. this isn't about like blaming your parents or being like, you know, having an, energy around it. Like you didn't do a good enough job. So I'm going to go back into it myself and I'm going to do it better. It's, yeah. it's not like to be insulting to parents. It's, um, like, you know, I think about raising my own kids and I'm sure there are going to be things that when they're older, they're going to talk about in therapy about me that I did that fucked them up in some way. And like, I don't want to do that, obviously. And I'm going to try to do my very hardest to parent them the best that I can so that they're not messed up, but, but we're not perfect. People aren't perfect. And there's, there are always going to be things that happen to us, you know, specifically in childhood that we're going to have to work through later. And it's not meant to be insulting to our parents. I love that you're saying that that's a really important key about reparenting work or inner child work, because your parents, they're probably reparenting themselves too. And reparenting also come from an interaction with peers, like on the playground. And obviously your mom or dad or whoever was taking care of you does not work. And that's not their fault, but you just, yeah. it, it's, you get to just create these really important, emotionally corrective experiences for yourself and meet any emotional unmet need. And yeah. it's, it's also so important. I love what you're saying about humanizing your parents because you know, a lot of this work is generational healing mm -hmm. and honoring that our parents did the absolute best that they could. I mean, I hear about the way my parents were brought up and the way that they were with me makes so much sense. And so mm -hmm. also, you know, a secondary experience that comes with reparenting is you might start finding yourself having a lot more empathy for your parents with time. Yeah. Don't force yes. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it does take time sometimes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I, you know, we don't need to like go into like Pollyanna mode, but you might find that you see your parents as these adult children as well, who are just navigating yeah. life and figuring it out. And that's, I think, a really nice thing that comes with reparenting. Not always, but often. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And it can work. take time. But so with the book, I'm glad my mom died. She suffered a lot of big traumas at the hands of her mother. And so her reparenting was intense. Um, yeah. but even she who, who had, um, and you know, parents can get defensive and like raise their hackles a little bit, but also kids can get defensive of their parents and be like, well, my mom did a great job. And so it's interesting in that book, even though she experienced some really traumatic abuse at the hands of her mom, she left her first therapist because her therapist used the word abuse when she was talking about the things that her mother did to her. And she was like, no, my mom loves, loved me. Like my mom would have done anything for me. And like immediately went into defense mode of her mom. And she eventually came back around and, you know, went to a new therapist and was able to work through those things. But I think that's mm -hmm. something that can like put up our defenses pretty quickly when mm -hmm. we think either we as the child or we as the parent think that, um, you know, our parents are being like attacked in therapy or as a parent thinking like, Oh, I don't want my kid to go to therapy. They're just going to like demonize me and, and blame me for everything. So it's, it's just an interesting, there's, a, it's just a whole interesting thing there around parenting. And so I don't know, just kind of wanted to say that to like dispel some myths around what the point of reparenting is. 
It's not to blame. Definitely. And I'm glad you're bringing it up. And it's also, um, we all have an idea of what therapy is and we can kind of project it onto each other, not knowing that we're doing it. Yes. Right. Like I, I find too, that some people will come to therapy and it feels like betrayal to acknowledge that their parents could have done better or that Mm -hmm. there was abuse until you can also find peace with that. Doesn't mean I don't love them. Doesn't mean that they don't love me. It just means this is what happened. And so yeah, that can take a really long time to even accept. Yeah, I like that you're one of those myths because initially it can be like reparenting. What? I, I parented you. Why do you need, why do, you yeah. need to do that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you had a great childhood. <laughs> so, and then the other thing, the other tool that I wanted to talk about, which I don't know much about this. I've just been hearing things about it is shadow work. Mm-hmm. So what is that? Shadow work. Oh, you'll have to tell me. I'm sure you'll start it because you're a seeker and you're you. So you'll have to tell me when you start, but shadow okay. work. Um, there's so many different ways to explain it. The way I like to explain it is that it's the practice of accepting or shedding light on the rejected aspects of stuff. So mm-hmm. they are no longer operating in the dark. Um, and it actually mm-hmm. goes hand in hand with reparenting and inner child work. So it's basically inviting something out of the shadow into the light so you can look at it mm-hmm. and honor it and accept it not to approve of it because we all have shadowy parts of ourselves that we don't love or like it's like our blind spot and mm-hmm. that's it's deep healing work it can feel like an internal exorcism <laughs> pulling that out pulling that out i mean i've done shadow work at retreats where i'm sitting across from a person and you're saying the most horrible thing you could ever think about yourself um, and the person is saying it back to you and they're saying it until it no longer holds a charge um, mm-hmm. and so shadow work, it also sort of neutralizes the things that we almost feel like allergic to about ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'll give a really good example. Cause I know yeah. it sounds like great. So say, say you're walking into a party and there's this girl or person who is like super loud and outgoing and you're in the party and you're like, she's so freaking obnoxious. She's so annoying. Like she's always taking up all the space and when you look at it through the lens of shadow work, it might be well, what parts of myself that want to be seen or confident or outgoing don't I approve of? It doesn't mean this person can't be annoying. It really doesn't, it mm-hmm. just doesn't talk about the person anymore. And then you get to ask yourself, well, what are the parts of myself that I reject that I don't let myself be confident, be outgoing? What part of myself needs a little bit of love to come online? And then you do inner child work, say, okay, well, whoa, why is it rejected? Where wasn't there enough space for that? And it, the two actually like really come together nicely, but that is my long, short answer for shadow yeah. work. You start to integrate the things that you find that you've rejected. So I think it's a truth that oftentimes we're most bothered by things in other people that we dislike about ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, like, so for example, you're using your example, there's this obnoxious girl and she's being way too loud. Mm-hmm. Um maybe you're annoyed by yourself and you're too loud or you feel like you can't take up the space to be loud. Is that kind of in line with shadow work? Yeah, exactly. It There can be a lack of acceptance. So like maybe I could be too loud or over the top, but I don't accept it or I don't like that about myself. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I'm jealous and I wish that I could mm-hmm. have that, you know, sort of like no fucks mentality. Um, it doesn't mean that I want to exact, exactly act the way that I'm looking at this person. It, it just becomes about the quality or the aspect of self that we have a relationship to. Um, a good sort of like thing to come back to with shadow work is like, if you spot it, you got it. So if something triggers you or something, <laughs> I love that. You, like, what is it inside of you that you either, you either don't approve of or that you reject? So true. So then is the point of shadow work in my mind, I'm imagining that it's kind of two pronged, like one being less judgmental of other people and being more accepting of other people. Instead, you might be like, huh, that, you know, she's being loud. Like I know that I don't always feel comfortable taking up space and being loud, you know, good for her that she's able to take up that space. So like, I think of it as that one part, like just being outwardly better, but then inwardly just being more accepting of yourself. Is that kind of like what the point of shadow work is? Yeah, I definitely think those are two 
of the main aspects of why we do it. And I would say it comes back to just feeling whole. Like it's almost like you're facilitating wholeness within yourself. And so when and if something about yourself that you, that isn't your best quality, like none of us are perfect, is mirrored back to you, you then get to to hear it. You can handle it. <laughs> you can look at yourself. Yeah. So if someone's saying to me, like, you know, you're really defensive or you're really critical. My shadow would want to be like, no, I'm not. What do you mean? I'd probably be defensive and critical to someone saying that. But if I've integrated those rejected aspects of myself, I can say, okay, wow, I, I really might be. Mm. Um, and you can see the wholeness comes from also seeing the aspects that come with being defensive or critical. So if you're defensive, you're probably really passionate. You're probably really fierce. If you're critical, you're probably really curious. You're probably um, a deep thinker or, you know, you want the best or have really high standards. Mm. So you then get to be also really curious about yourself and say, can all of these really awesome things exist without the shadow aspect being so online? You know what I mean? Oh, that's so interesting to think of it as like two sides of a coin, mm-hmm. like what you were just saying. Like if you're really critical, the other side of the coin is that you're really curious. I hadn't thought of it like that, like kind of the positive side of the negative. And so then you're saying like the work is to, I don't know, like get rid of sort of or accept and like work through like the negative aspect of that, of the, the negative side of the coin. Yeah. Like, so in my opinion, I'd be curious to hear other people's opinions. I don't think you can ever fully get rid of it. Yeah. Um, but you can invite it in to know that it doesn't have to work so hard. It's almost like neutralizing mm. thing. So, you know, if I have a part of my shadow, so I actually was talking about my, this with my therapist earlier this week. Um, and we were talking about my perfectionism and she said, well, isn't the shadow of perfectionism shame? And I was like, yeah, it really is. Mm. And when I acknowledge my shame or when I can look at that, my perfectionism naturally dissolves a bit because then I'm looking at what's actually bringing me shame what needs some love and attention here so it's less about getting rid of it and more about understanding why it's there and creating any acceptance about a part of yourself that you might not be crazy about that you don't really love um and that it can be really helpful for healing from addiction or you know like we were talking about the ick of self earlier like if you get an ick about yourself that's another great segue into saying okay whoa what shadow work can I do here because the more we not deny something about ourselves the more triggered we're going to be if someone says something to us that we don't want to hear we're gonna we're gonna have a strong reaction whereas if yeah. we've done ourselves we can say okay yeah interesting more yeah um, because we're not we're not running from anything <laughs> it's all in the light and when things are in the shadow obviously they get bigger and bigger and bigger interesting okay well I think to a degree I've done shadow work without calling it shadow work or knowing to call it that. I feel like you have. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I I hadn't heard that term until recently. And it's like, what does this mean? So, okay. Thank you for explaining it. (laughs) really good book just for you or anybody that wants to learn more about it. It's an old book, but um, The Dark Side of the Light Chaser by Debbie Ford is a really good book on shadow work. The Dark Side of the Light Chaser. That's a great Debbie title. I know. It's a good one. So let's move to uh, wrap up and Q&A. So for starters, what's something that you're really grateful for right now? I I mean, this may sound like a corny answer, but I'm just really grateful to be alive. I mean, I think it's been it's been a year for me yeah. personally. But I feel like just waking up and the micro moments, my gratitude practice has really helped me like my cup of coffee, this conversation with you. I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. Um, So I would just say my life, (laughs) grateful for being alive. What is something that most people don't know about you? This question, I mean, it could go anywhere from like, I can fit 19 grapes in my mouth to like (laughs) at one time. So like my first major in college being that I was, um, my first major was on speech. I was, I went for speech pathology. And then after a semester, I um sounds like a choking hazard putting 19 grapes in your mouth but um recommend yeah don't recommend don't try it let's just leave that skill to carry and we don't need her to prove it we'll just believe her that she can um what's a favorite 
book of yours? Um, my favorite book ever, I would say, is The Untethered Soul right? and Living Untethered by Michael Singer. Um, they've helped me so much. And I recommend them to all my clients, those two books. They're more in like a spiritual vein, but also, yeah. yeah. And for pleasure, because I feel like that's super important too, because we're always working on yes. yourself. Yes. I've just been reading like Colleen Hoover books and enjoying them. I know Colleen Hoover is really popular. I had like a really big issue with her book, It Ends With Us. Have you read that one? It's like a pink cover. I think it, yes, I did. But that was like, that was the book that she kind of wrote for TikTok, no? Oh, I don't know. It was the one, it's the one where um, the they end up getting married. The husband is abusive. Like they have like this great relationship and then he like snaps one time and hits her and, you know, she and then they she ends up pregnant and she like, the problem I had with it was that she continued, it was just like a setting a bad example. I feel like for people who maybe abuse, like she kept inviting him into her space, into her apartment alone afterward. And it just, it felt very like sympathetic to the abuser, I guess is like the easiest way to put it. Yes. Okay. So I did read that book and it was, it was hard to, it was um, obviously I couldn't put it down, but it wasn't a relaxing read at all. Like I had to do something else before I went to bed to like calm down from reading the book. And I think what I learned about the author, and I don't know if you know this or if it's true, but her mom, she witnessed her mom going through or struggling with a lot of um, abuse, abuse and the mom left. But I think her aim was to get into or to translate what it's like in terms of the thought process that happens when you're being abused and how you're unable um, to see, like, like you're saying, like inviting the abuser over, giving this sort of perpetual benefit of the doubt, living for the potential. So it, I agree. It was, it was, I did read that part and that book and it was activating, but I think what she was trying to do was trying to say, this is, this is what happens. This is how your brain starts to work and change when you're being abused. Yeah. But, I think it was for me, mostly it was the, which, you know, with you explaining it like that, it makes more sense, but the constant, like, like I felt like the author herself was sympathizing with the abuser. Yeah. Like, what yeah. is going on here? But anyway, I know she's really popular and a lot of people really like her. And no, that's I the only know. book of hers that I've read. And I was just like, oh. <laughs> turn it off. It's so much different and it's not the same at all. But I've heard a lot of people speak up about. Yeah. One, one other thing that she said, which bothered me, is she like doesn't agree with trigger warnings. She, she. Oh. I would have appreciated one when I was reading the book. I know. And, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, but she said something along the lines of she doesn't agree with trigger warnings because essentially it would like, ex like reveal too much about her book before somebody's read it. And so I felt that was very selfish. Yeah. I'm like, okay, so for the benefit of you as an author and like keeping the, the plot of your book, you know, close to your chest, you're going to potentially expose people to a trigger without letting them know that they might be triggered in your book. So I thought that was really fucked up. Yeah, I did not know that. And I also feel like there's a way to give a trigger warning without giving it away because actually when I think about it, you're like, man, no shit. My friend gave me that book to read. She's like, you know, and she was giving it to me like, oh, it's just a juicy, like kind of like mindless read. Like that was the yeah. current. The first page of that book is insanely triggering. And I remember texting my friend and being like, hey, why did you give me this? <laughs> And she like you know me why did you give me this yeah. and she was like oh I like I, I had no idea like I completely forgot about the first page and I was like no I know it's not your job to remember the whole book I just I haven't gotten past the first three pages so I'm like a little bit thrown off and then as I read the book I was like okay now I understand why you thought I would enjoy it but to your point a trigger warning is important um yeah and she, she had a stance on that Yes. She had, yeah, she had like a strong stance against that. So anyway, um, <laughs> not to destroy, yeah, not to destroy Colleen Hoover, but yeah. Um, anyway. good. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Next question. What would you tell younger you, if you could go back in time? I would tell her that she doesn't need to worry so much. I would tell her that she's beautiful. Um, and I would tell her that she's safe. 
Finally, what would you say to someone who thinks therapy isn't for them or someone who, these might be two different answers, but someone who has had a negative experience with therapy? Yeah. So to the person who says therapy isn't for them, I would say it might not be for you for right now, but keep it in the now. Like right now, it doesn't feel like it's for me. Don't rob yourself of saying it's never for you. Mm. Um, and maybe explore what therapy could mean to you and what you've been taught or told therapy is because you get to decide what you want it to be for you. Um, that would be one. And then to someone who's had a negative experience in therapy, I would say, I'm sorry that that happened. That sucks. And then I would also say that sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. You're starting to process really heavy things and it can feel overwhelming and it's important that you go at a pace that feels good for you with a therapist that you feel beyond safe with like no doubt that you feel this person can hold you and if you've had a negative experience with a certain therapist I would just hope that you wouldn't let it turn you off from creating that space for yourself because there are so many therapists in the world and there is someone for everybody I truly truly believe that so um, just holding the hope that you can find your your sweet spot and your person um, to work with you. I love that. Thank you for taking the time. And, you know, I think it was my hope and aim with this conversation that maybe it reaches somebody who thinks that therapy isn't for them or who's had a bad experience and, uh, hopefully can provide some more, I guess, information around what therapy is and can be. And, um, from the perspective of somebody who is a practicing therapist. So I thank you for your, your expertise. I don't take it lightly that you join me here to, to talk about what you know, because I, I definitely don't have the expertise. And so I think it's really, really valuable to hear it from somebody who, you know, is a practicing therapist. So I just want to say thank you. Oh, thank you. And I hope this conversation reaches exactly who it's supposed to. And I, just want to tell you, I admire the work that you're doing on this podcast and that we're having this conversation. You created this moment and this message that you wanted to spread. And um, yeah, I just feel like your work is a gift and following you for the past nine years after becoming your friend has felt so awesome. Um, and just as a person and a woman, you really inspire me. So Thanks for listening to the Makers, Dreamers, Doers podcast with me, Morgan Barrett. Please remember to follow, review, and share this podcast with anyone who you think would enjoy it. Your support helps more people find the podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at morganbarrett underscore underscore and check out my website for more information at morganbarrett.co.